0: One of the things we're watching happen in the culture today, I think probably in many ways, is a reaction against uh, the technology of the world that's going. We, we see technology kind of spiraling out of control, and uh, we're kind of seeing people begin to push back against it in various ways. Uh, you know, one of the ways I think is the most amusing, and I have to admit I am a little bit of a troll, uh, is with a conversation about natural foods we see people that are like, well, we don't like the genetically modified. We're pushing back against that. We, we want to eat naturally. We want to we want to be natural. We want to kind of go back to the way it was when life expectancy was 30 years old uh, and eat like they did. But we want to we want to go back to it. And, and again, again, I confess I am a little bit of a troll. And I say, well, what do you mean? Like, like we're supposed to eat lots of bananas. And that's the one I always throw out because people are always like, yeah, bananas are great. You should always eat bananas. And I'm like, I know you're absolutely right. And i let the conversation go on for a little while because people don't realize that bananas, as you know them, don't exist in nature. Every banana or plantain you have ever eaten is genetically modified. You know what a banana looks like in nature, a natural banana? It's a little bit smaller than your thumb. They're almost inedible. They're good for pig feed, that's about it. Every banana that you've ever eaten is genetically modified. The problem is is that we don't know that, and when we bring a lack of knowledge to the table, we evaluate everything through the lens of today. So when we have a conversation about eating naturally and all of the emotion that that entails and such, and somebody throws out bananas, we say, yes, eat naturally like bananas, but we bring today's information to the table. You can't see the past for what it is today. My advisor in college wrote his dissertation on the ecology, I'm not making this up, the ecological ecological changes uh, taking place during the war between the states and how birds migrated differently because of the way the armies moved. And so he was very big on kind of looking at ecological history and everything. And it was amazing because I remember one of the things that we studied is, uh, again, there's a movement, and this was many decades ago, to say we want to kind of help restore the ecology that was here before Anglos landed on this great uh, continent of ours. We want to go back and see the restoration of what it looked like before white people got here. You know, We want to see the English sparrows gone We want to see the, you know, kudzu gone. We want to see the things, the way they looked when it was just the Native Americans. And my uh, advisor would always laugh and kind of chuckle at that because uh, he said that from the moment that Anglos touched down, the first ship Anglos touched down bringing European diseases and European rats, Europe arrived 10 years before the white people ever made contact. It was also part of why the relationship with the Native Americans was so devastating because they would have a mystery illness come in and kill anywhere from 10 to 80 percent of their population, and then the next year or two years later or three years later, white people would show up. And they had no idea what to do because death incarnate had just come into their midst. They had no idea how to process. But again, they weren't able to see. We aren't able to see. The world in which we live, this ecology, is more and more Europe than we ever realized we can't see the past clearly, sometimes because of the present. The point I'm making, even as we start, hopefully you kind of figured out, is that the danger with Exodus 21 is that we read Exodus 21 only with the postmodern eyes, the enlightened eyes of 2019 America, and not the context in which it is written. There's a danger, I mean, you have all, all of the doozies in one chapter it's amazing slavery i mean if you caught verses 7 through 11 it's the whole like marriage without consent thing kind of awkward selling your daughters into slavery uh killing babies in the womb and whether or not that's abortion and fantaside or what we have all all of the doozies of american culture in one chapter and i want to challenge us even as we start to think about this uh, chapter not again through the lens of today as much You have to go a little bit through time traveling to try to think about this from the context in which it was originally delivered. Context is king in so many ways. And if we were to travel back in time to remember when Exodus 21 was written, we would be taken to the foot of the mountain. Having come out of Egypt, having come out of slavery, having come out of misery and having come into miracles and miracle after miracle after miracle. The things we would have seen no generation before, probably no generation since has ever seen. And having been wandering through the desert and the Lord providing taken to the foot of the mountain where for the first time really ever the nation of Israel would meet her God. What will he be like? I mean we know he's powerful. When we know he's mighty. I mean he kind of spoke and the sea fled. We We know that. It ran away from him. He's big enough that the sea runs from him. That's pretty big. What is he like? What is he not like? Does he like it when we sing? Does he not like it when we sing? We, what What is this God like? And he takes them to the mountain, and it is the most uh, intensely terrifying in the best sort of way kind of interchange ever. You remember, God sets it up, it's so serious that even if, you're, if your cattle step on the mountain, you have to kill them. But the holiness is so real that you can't kill them by touching them. Because if you touch them, we have to kill you too. So if you kill them, you have to kill them with like, you know, throwing things at them or anything that would keep you from touching them. Because the holiness is so real. And then in chapter 20, God finally speaks and he gives the 10 words is what it is in the Hebrew. We call them the 10 commandments. It's the 10 words, the 10 biggies. This is who I am. We talked about this two weeks ago, how it is a misreading of the 10 commandments to view them primarily as what I can and cannot do. That is a misreading of the commandments. The primary reading of the commandments is this is who God is. This is what is important to him and what is not. Now, as you understand that, it tells you how to live and how not to. This is who God is. This is what he values. This is what is important to him. And he finishes the Ten Commandments. He gives them a brief instruction on, hey, how you worship. You're so different from me. You don't just get to stroll into my presence any way you want. Again, even going so far as he dictates to them what kind of underwear they're allowed to have when they approach him. He is serious about his worship. Until we get to chapter 21. Oh, boy, what do we do with this one, right? Man, there's, there's so much stuff here. How, how do we deal with this one? What on earth are we supposed to do? And I think, again, is to look at it uh, from the big picture. These are, well, we'll give a bit of info first. These are specific. You notice in verse 1, these are the rules that you shall set before them. Chapter 20 lays out the words. The ten, we call them commandments, but the ten words of God. Here we have what we would call today, in modern legal term, case law. We have the principles established already. Now we start putting them into practice to sort out the exact little details of how things work. The Hebrew has a different word to highlight. It's a different thing. In fact, actually, uh, we would say in kind of Reformed tradition, the Ten Commandments are a reflection of the moral law. Those are, uh, it's a reflection of God's character. Those are unchanging. It's a reflection of who he uh, has been, is, and will always be. These primarily we see as connected to the nation of Israel. They're national law. Thankfully, I am not sinning, every time I do not put a child to death for disrespecting their parents. Thankfully, I would hate my job. We would also have a lot less bodies in the room. (laughs) (laughs) These are laws that are given to Israel as a case law. Teach them how to behave as a nation, how to function, and how to practice. And it's because of this, the, the one primary point of this sermon is this. If chapter 20 shows us who God is and what he values, chapter 21 shows us that his people are supposed to be different from the world. They're supposed to be different from the world. He teaches us through these laws for the nation of Israel, they are supposed to be unique. There's no other nation in the world that looks like this when it happens. And by the way, we do have a number of the different law codes from countries that existed approximately at this time. We know what their laws look like. Go read the Code of Hammurabi if you want to have a cure for insomnia sometime. And the Lord is going to show them here a number of ways that they are to be different. We're going to kind of look at very quickly, very briefly, four different ways that he challenges his people to be different. First, verses 1 through 6, their understanding of slavery is totally different. Now, again, this is an important thing to think about, not through the days, uh, today's modern kind of postmodern lens where we immediately, again, as Tom said this in Sunday school, we immediately think of the chattel slavery of the South in the 1860s, and we shouldn't. Um, This is going to be a very different thing, and we're going to have to talk about that for a moment. But what he's going to do is when God is calling attention to them, he knows their family history. Remember, God knows his people. He knows their history, he knows their family history, he knows their background, and where they've been for the last 400 and change years, 430 years. Where have they been? They've been in Egypt, and what have they been in Egypt? They've been slaves. You have to think about the people of Israel, the only thing they've ever known at this point, everyone alive, the only thing they've ever known is to be a slave, and you know that we are such amazing creatures of habit that we replicate the things we see. I mean, how many of you do you love watching and laughing at the children of the church with the ways that they don't even realize how they're parroting their parents? You can, you can laugh at them because the things they think are funny or the way they talk or the way they make their gestures. It's like, oh my goodness, just like their mom or dad. Here God is correcting him and saying, look, you're coming out of Egypt and all you've ever known is slavery. And I know the human heart, the natural inclination is going to be attempt to replicate that. Your natural temptation is going to be to want to enslave those that you come in contact with. And you, my people, will be different. You will be different. You will not be allowed to have chattel slavery the way that you were. In Egypt, where they owned you and they could kill you and they could buy and sell you and do anything they wanted to you. And if they wanted to kill your firstborn children, they killed your firstborn children. If they wanted to be rotten to you, they could do that. We will not tolerate that in Israel. This is not the way Israel will be. In fact, actually, if you want to be more technical, the word here for slave is the word for worker with the vowels kind of tweaked a little. To the point where there's reasons why it could be translated as slave or servant or bond servant or even sometimes worker. It's all related to the same word. The noun is the noun version of the word for work. What God is establishing here in verses 1 through 6, what he's letting Israel do and understand is not chattel slave where you're owned and bought and sold in the ways that we would again think of. Not the modern banana that we think of today but instead is actually creating a very sophisticated form of debt removal. A way for indentured servants to get rid of their debt. And again, this is a thing that we maybe don't think of today because our modern society is so well established and it is so hard to upset the fabric of kind of our culture these days. But when you live in a primarily agrarian society... What does it take for you to get into serious financial trouble? Like life-threatening financial trouble. It takes one bad season, doesn't it? I mean, we think about our yard right now. We have seed growing in our backyard. We we seeded it, and immediately the next day got a massive rain. And so now all of the ditches around our yard have amazing healthy grass growing in it. (laughs) And our yard has nothing but dirt. Washed all the seed away. It only takes one bad season, and so it would be very easy for you to get yourself into debt. And again, with farmers, once you get into debt, it's really hard to get out of it. Because what do you need to get out of debt if you're a farmer? Well, you need more money to buy more seed and then another good season. And if you have two bad ones in a row, man, it's a world of hurt. So one of the things that was a common occurrence that the Lord is instructing to kind of frame out how they work is, look, when you go in debt, you're in a world of hurt. It's hard to get out of it. In an agrarian society, so one of the things that God would allow for is for a person to sell their labor, not themselves, but their labor for a period of time as a way of debt removal. And it would be an agreement that we would make. If I were in trouble and and world of hurt and Joe could support me, I could make my agreement with Joe and say, Joe, I'm going to work for you for six years. I'll move into your home. You feed me. You clothe me, you put a roof over my head, you give me a bed and blankets, and you get my labor for those six years. And those are the terms of the agreement. And again, thinking about it, when you live in an agrarian society, a nine-to-five job isn't the same as today. I live 15 and a half miles from church. It takes me about 21 minutes to get here with no traffic. You didn't do that in agrarian society. You lived where you worked because work was early in the morning, late at night, and hard work. You didn't run over to, you know, Costco or Walmart when you were out of stuff. You had to make it. So you would make this arrangement where you would then work and exchange your labor labor, uh, for a period of time. And again, the Lord here is framing out how this is going to work. Look, you can't exchange more than six years. We have a cap on it. You can't have so much debt that it's like, well, I will pledge myself for 28 years that's not going to work we're going to put a a hard cap on it for a season and then again some of the other terms that make sense if he comes in single he goes out single why because that's what again using Joe as my illustration here uh, Joe would have to pay for if I've contracted myself to work for Joe for six years he's paying for me likewise if I came in with a wife Joe would know that he would be providing for not just me but for my family He would be providing for my wife and for my children. Those would be the terms of the deal. However, if along the way the man gets married, suddenly the terms of the deal have changed, haven't they? Because babies were really helpful. In fact, I grew up in a culture that sometimes joked about one of the best reasons to have children was so they could cut the grass in the summer when it's 90 degrees outside. (laughs) You didn't have to do it, they'd do it. There's a truth to that in an agrarian society, and the same thing happens here. Look, if the slave goes in, they have this agreement, the indentured servant, and the slave gets married along the way, specifically provided by the master, Uh, the wife and the kids stay with the master. Because otherwise, you would be able to use indentured servitude to tremendous profits because you could go in, constrict, you know, conscript yourself for six years of labor, have that, the, the master provide you with a wife, have him pay for all of the, the financial needs of the wife, have tons of babies on his dime, and then leave afterwards having ripped him off for a ton of money. You think, oh, that never happened. <clears throat> go read Genesis. It absolutely did. Remember Jacob, Rachel, Leah... That's the exact situation that's being described here. Jacob contracts single. He's like, hey, I'll trade you my years of labor for a wife. And Laban's like, nah, I'll change the terms of the deal, give you a different wife. And then he's like, well, I'll work six, you know, seven more years. for this, this exact scene right here, right? It's exactly what's being talked about. But let's say the guy really loves his wife and kids. I would assume this would be the normal thing. He could renegotiate the terms of the deal afterwards, but only afterwards. Look, I really like working for you. Really like my wife and kids. Kind of want to be with them. I don't currently have enough money myself to buy them off of you. Because remember, they're worth a whole lot. Their labor is. I can't find another job that will pay me enough for me to be able to redeem them off of you. So instead, I'll just commit myself to you forever because I love them. I love you. At which point the master would take the slave to the temple they would, or, or um, to the spiritual religious leaders, the priests. They would agree to the, make it public knowledge, agree to it together, and then give him a big old earring so that it would designate he's working for this family. And what's established here is this great principle of voluntary labor. Again, look at how different this is than Egypt. Did they want to be building the cities they were building in Egypt? Now, did they want to be building them at the rate that they were building them? Remember how the book of Exodus starts? The Pharaoh gets a little grumpy with them, cantankerous. And he's like, you know what? I'll work them so hard that they either start dying in the field or they're too tired to make more babies. Not a good situation. This absolutely is establishing something different. It's an agreement, a business transaction, and ultimately the thing that is owned is the labor and not the person. That's a huge distinction to make. The Lord is reshaping the culture of Israel. The second paragraph, whoo, this one's a doozy, isn't it? I mean, verse 7 is enough to make all our hair stand up. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, we can right there, that's awkward. Again, thinking about, though, we live in a society where so much stability has been created. I mean, it's amazing how much stability has been created not that way in an agrarian society and it would be very easy to get yourself in a world of hurt and when your business is uh, um, you know an agrarian business and it is the thing that is providing not just money for your family but the actual food and such there's a very very real kind of situation where you just don't have enough food and you're suddenly confronted with the reality of how do i keep people from starving to death And it's a really terrible, I mean, I cannot imagine as a parent having to make that decision. How much food do I, as the dad, need to eat to be able to work in the field to get more food to grow? And who's the last in the pecking order to get it? And you can see the reasoning, can't you? Dad's the strongest. He's going to get enough to keep him working in the field so they can make more money. The brothers are the next strongest. They're going to get the next portion so they can work in the field to keep the food going. Mom and the kids are left. And if you want to talk about someone who was maybe not the most valuable in this culture in this time, it would have been the young daughters. They, at that point in their lives, could contribute the least financially to the home. And so there's a very real possibility that a family would be in such dire straits that instead of the dad contracting himself, let's say he's got a whole bunch of kids and no employer in his right mind is going to say, yes, I will support you and your 14 children for this, you know, five-year span because I can't afford all of you. Well, instead, the dad could take his young daughter and conscript her instead. He could trade her labor where she could go in and work and in fact actually it's clarified here and boy this is a real doozy uh, it would be arranged so that if when he did this it would in essence be actually a part of her marriage contract Um, so that when she was a part of this new home she would be sold as a slave and that would be the term but it would be specifically as verse 8 highlights either for the master himself or for his son So she would come in and be uh, a part of that. That was the expected relationship. It was part of a marriage contract. And what this would be is instead of uh, like a bride price or a dowry price, instead of having to to negotiate the bride price, it's like, look, you get her and you get her at a discount rate, so to speak, uh, because I'm in over my head financially. And you can already do the math, many of you. Many of you ladies are probably at this point getting a little uncomfortable. And I know y'all don't sweat, so you might be glowing a little bit because uh, this makes you so uncomfortable. You realize the exact situation this could create for, couldn't it? An unbelievable way to take a tremendous advantage of little girls. To treat them as a commodity, to treat them without value, to treat them without importance. And it's intriguing actually what God does set up. Verse 8, if she doesn't please her master, who's designated her to be his wife, then he has to let her go, let her be redeemed. She's valuable in her own right. He can't sell her to a foreign people because she's not a commodity and because he has broken faith. I love that because he's done her dirty, because he bought her with the express intention of her becoming his wife, and then he chose not to, he can't just get rid of her, discard her as a used thing. She has value and meaning. Verse 9, if he designates her for his son, he has to treat her like a daughter. That's an amazing thing. I mean, you think about this little girl going from a family that is starving to death to a family that is wealthy enough to participate in activities like this. And the second that she comes in in this situation, it's like, oh, yeah, no, you're going to marry my son, but you're my daughter now, you're family. You have all of the rights and privileges of the home. You want to eat? Here's food. No, you haven't had that for probably many years. Enjoy your fill." And if, verse 10, a practice that was sadly and tragically quite common in this day, uh, if he were to take another wife for himself, he cannot get rid of her. He can't, uh, he has to continue to give her food, he has to continue to give her clothing, uh, has to get the word marital rights there at the end of verse 10, we actually have no idea what that word means. We just assume that it means marital rights. And it would make sense. He has to give her children because her children would be her livelihood in the future. You didn't have, you know, Social Security, which we won't, but you didn't have it then. And uh, when you go to retire or old age, your children had to take care of you. Uh, All of this he has to provide for. And, And again, what it's doing is it's interesting how God is setting up a situation where his people are to take care of the weak. If we were going to put it in today's standards, we would say God is giving value to the valueless. In terms of an agrarian lifestyle with the home and everything, these would be the people that their value, their financial profitability to the home would be to be used as a commodity. And God says people are not commodities. They are to be treated with dignity and with respect and with kindness and with honor and with care. Now, again, remember the culture this happening is very different than today. Children were viewed very differently than today, and everything looks different when you're starving to death. But God is setting up a system that takes care, that shows honor, that shows respect, that provides for. It doesn't feel it by our modern standards, but this is unbelievably generous and loving. The next one, this three here, we get into uh, verses uh, 12 through 17. I'm just going to go through it real quickly and just summarize it this way. Malice matters. What's framed out in verses 12 through 17, uh, malice matters. The heart matters. These verses are hard because they're all punishable by death. These are uh, punishable by death crimes. And you have a number of them in here that are really intriguing and one that's not. I mean, you have the shocking ones of if you hit your mother or father. Some of us in here might have taken a swing at our parents once. (laughs) I mean, think about that. If you're an ancient Israel, you wouldn't be here now because you'd be dead. Because the town would have come and found you and they would have killed you. They would have stoned you to death. Or to curse his father or mother, I suspect that will be a larger percentage of us in here that would be dead. But the intriguing one to me is verse 12, or verse 13, I guess. It makes a distinction between uh, intentional murder and uh, what we would call maybe manslaughter. Premeditated murder versus what we would call, again, manslaughter or even murder three, maybe. Uh, the first one is <laughs> if you lie in wait, you're conniving and cunning, you're planning to kill this person and they come, well, then you die. However, if, and look at how God even puts it himself, if God himself lets this person fall into your hand and that's how the murder happened, well, you're still guilty of murder, but you can flee to the sanctuary cities to hide. You don't get killed right away. In fact, if you can flee to the sanctuary city, you don't get killed at all. But the intriguing thing here is how much it, it aims for the heart. You see Jesus taking up this argument later in the New Testament where the Pharisees and the scribes have missed it, where they said, look, it's only about actions. And it's like, no, the heart matters. Malice matters. If, if you intended to go kill that person, well, guess what? Your life is forfeit because people are important, because people matter, because their lives are worth something. And then eighteen through where we stopped twenty seven. What this is establishing is an equity of law. And again, remember, this was not written in a time in which there's a massive police force and a tremendous you know uh, court system. And if you do something and then you get sued and litigious culture and all this, or you know if you're really crazy, the SWAT team shows up your front door and you know blows your door down and take. We didn't have any of that. This time was a time in which uh, it was much more like you think about uh, in parts of our country in the past where uh, you remember the story of the Hatfields and the McCoys? Uh, so I pastored with one of the McCoys, which was really fun. Uh, like direct lineage, his you know, great, 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 great grandfather was. If you remember the story, it's two families that were feuding and like killed dozens and dozens of each other. And they're not entirely sure what even started the feud. And they're not really sure why it continued. But all they know is these two families went to war and they just continued to kill each other. That was much more common in this day, where you did something to me. It was a perceived slight. I rounded up all of my, you know, my buddies. We went and then, you know, killed your kids. And you got angry about us killing your kids. So you rounded up all your buddies and you came and killed my entire town. And then I went and got the other towns. And then I went back and and what the Lord is establishing here is to say, look, no, 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 no we're not going to do this. We're going to have a system that is uh, equitable, meaning it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. You are the same under the law, doesn't matter uh, if you are uh, boy or girl, doesn't matter if you're young or old, you have the same rights and privileges in the law. Every time it's mentioned here with a slave, it specifically notes male or female slave doesn't matter. Remembering that they would have had very different values in terms of how much labor they could produce because of the type of labor. He's creating a system that's equitable, that's fair, that has proper responses, that it has a measured response. Uh, again, uh, you could go read and code. This is the most fair, balanced, equitable, reasonable law system anywhere in the world at this time, which again, of course it is, it's God's. Four principles, voluntary labor, Value for the valueless, malice matters, and equity under law. That's what God was building Israel to look like. So that all people could exist under that nation having voluntary labor, unlike Egypt. Where The valueless have value where all people matter, unlike Egypt. Where even the heart malice matters. Unlike Egypt, where there's equity for the rich, for the poor, for boys, for girls, doesn't matter. Everyone's the same under the law. Unlike Egypt, Israel was to be different. Well, what do we do this? And I'm going to very quickly just end with a couple of very quick applications. Uh, this was a lot of explanation needed on this one. One, I would say, is. Uh, There is a great danger that we in the church get the orders of chapter 20 and 21 backwards. Remember, chapter 20 is all about God showing who he is to his people. This is how you know me, and then after you know me, this is how you're supposed to live. Sometimes the church has had a branding problem, so to speak, where they lead with the second, hoping that people figure out the first. And that is called legalism. Where we lead with the rules, we lead with the laws, we lead with this is how you have to be. Oh, yeah, by the way, you should probably know God at some point along the way. And there's a danger that we sometimes maybe even would fall into that ourselves. To lose the focus of what Christianity is first and foremost about, it is first and foremost about knowing the triune God, it's about coming to the foot of the mountain. It's about having Christ as the great intercessor, the mediator, not Moses. It's about knowing God. And in light of that relationship, then behaving differently. Secondly, and this is the one that's probably a bit more common, I think, in terms of just thinking through, is it's intriguing that when God first begins to kind of reveal himself to his people, to to Israel, he first explains who he is, and then his entire framework for how they are, they are supposed to be different from the world around them. That is the, the primary, is the operative idea of what Israel is. They are to be different. And sometimes the church has embraced this by a desire to be weird. That's the wrong word. And it's not like, oh, yeah, go be strange. That's what Christians are like. no. But it does mean that we are to have a great difference from the culture around us. How we respect one another. How we value life. Again, if you're going to be biblical in any way, you have to value life in the womb. This chapter establishes it. If you kill the baby in the womb, you're guilty of murder and you have no hope to survive. They're obligated to kill you. We're going to take that ethic as part of what it means to understand God's truth. We're going to have to be different. In fact, actually, if you study church history, I haven't made this point in quite a while, but it's an important one. If you go back and study church history, every time the church has grown the most, it has when the church has been the most different, not the most alike. Go study any of the great revivals, any of the great periods of church renewal. The church is the most different then, not the same. Look at the first 350 years of church history persecution because the church is strange and different unique and holy. Persecution, persecution church grows, church grows, church grows. Suddenly Christianity becomes the religion of Rome and the church falls apart. The amazing thing though is that it is still one of those things that we, I don't know if we're just we think more clever or we're more lazy or what but we say well we'll be the first generation to try to be just like the world but better. I would encourage you just spend some time thinking periodically. How am I being persuaded to think just like the world? How are the ways in which my ethics are being transformed, in which my values are being shaped by the world? How I think what's important is being shaped by the world. And then lastly, there's also a grave danger that we neglect the role of the Holy Spirit in this. You see, these four principles that's laid out for Israel, the voluntary labor to per, uh, value for the valueless, malice matters, and equity under law, if we're going to be God's people, we're going to live differently than the world. You can't do that in your own strength. That's why historically the Reformed Church, we've gotten grief for being you know, kind of frozen chosen that don't understand the Holy Spirit, but that's just absolutely an unfair characterization. The most sophisticated and elegant understandings of the Holy Spirit anywhere in church history are found in the Reformed Church because theologically we understand that we can't do it on our own. We can't. We can't do it in our own. It's not it's beyond our ability to be different in ourselves. And so it creates a reliance going back to God to ask him, Lord help me see the ways that I'm being indoctrinated by the world. God, let me see the ways that I'm being tricked into being Egypt. Help me see the ways. Going back to the banana illustration. It's a good one. Because we see everything today and we think of bananas, we only think of the things that we know. We forget it was different in a different way. And sometimes, unfortunately, that's how our worldliness operates. We're so used to seeing things around us the way they are that we forget that it could be different. And it has been different and we should be different. Different than the world around us, which we mimic so well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, even the hard passages that make us work. Thank you that they're understandable. Thank you that uh, you command us to obey, even though we may not like it. Thank you that you are so generous, that in a time when uh, certainly uh, young ladies were not taken good care of, You created laws to tell your people they had to be protected. Thank you for that. Or we pray that we would be humble and holy, obedient, and different from the culture around us. For Christ's sake, amen. amen.